So um, tonight's class, uh, we're in a series of classes on Buddhist refuge, which is the topic of how and why we can get shelter. Refuge is kind of a weird word. We don't really use it in ordinary English. But um, the definition of refuge is like what can protect you. And so ordinarily, we take refuge in things all the time. We take refuge in having enough money so that we can pay our rent. We take refuge in having a house so that we don't get rained on or don't get burned by the sun. Um, you know, we take, presumably, if we needed to, we would take refuge in the fire department if our house was on fire or our homestead was on fire if you live in the country like me. Um, and so, uh, according to Buddhism, these things are called ordinary refuge. and. The problem with ordinary refuge is that sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work, right? Like we wouldn't have, as I was mentioning in the last class, the Black Lives Matters, the Black Lives Matter movement is a clear, is a clear uh, reflection of the fact that the police are not a source of refuge because for some people there's a, they'll, they're a source of protection and for other people they are a serious threat. and so. That's the emptiness of that of ordinary refuge. Emptiness is a Buddhist term for the lack of inherent characteristics to phenomena, meaning that if the, if the police were a refuge, they would protect everybody all the time, and they would never not protect people, and they would never hurt people. And so that proves that they can't be... They, 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 the, the quality of protection is not coming from the police. It's, in Buddhism, we would say it's a quality of the perception of the perceiver. So if you have the karma, quote unquote, air quotes, to um, get the protection that you need, then it will come in some form. Maybe it'll come from the police, maybe not. Um, this, this is just an example and kind of rehashing a little bit what the last class was all about. Um, so uh, in, in Buddhist philosophy, we're looking at ultimate refuge. Like, what is the refuge that can't fail? What is the shelter that will always be there for us, that won't, that won't get like, the rug pulled out from, under you when, out from under you when you least expect it? And so in Buddhism, they, they say that the ultimate refuge are the three jewels. This is what the class last month was on. And there's a, I mentioned there's a podcast, the website. You can download that stuff is mindbodyinline.com. And so we covered that in, in detail. But I just want to mention it briefly before we go on. The, the three jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha. And in, in Buddhist classes, it's, it's traditional, in fact, we haven't done this yet, so let's do it now, uh, to, go f to quote unquote go for refuge uh, at the beginning of a class. And so the, we go for refuge to the Buddha. We, and normally, um, if, if you're interested, we can pass this around too. This is a handout that shows traditional Tibetan prayers. It's in Tibetan, it's transliterated into English and translated into English. And so you can see this is like the nice, poem or song that you would sing at the beginning of class. Um, for me, this stuff has got to be practical. It's got to be useful. It has to make sense for me in my daily life. So rather than chanting in a language where we don't understand the words, um, I just I prefer to think about what going for refuge really means. And so 
we go for refuge in the Buddha is where we are taking solace in the idea that there is the possibility of a perfected being that there is a being that has an unlimited capacity for love an unlimited capacity for tolerance compassion and that that is the evolutionary trajectory that we're on that we're not limited by the body that I'm in now that consciousness continues past death and that we are on an evolutionary trajectory that is a scope of time that's unimaginably long but that the ultimate result of that evolution that we must all achieve inevitably eventually is that we'll reach this perfected state where we see all beings and all phenomena as part of me and we love each one of them as our own child or as our own parent and that those kinds of beings already exist and that they're helping us and so that's the second we go for refuge to the Dharma and the Dharma are the teachings like the breadcrumbs that the Buddhas have left behind for us to to sort of like help point us in the right direction to get us uh, to help us along our evolutionary path and so the Dharma is the the Dharma is the teachings like in the sort of kind of technical Buddhist way it's any kind of Buddhist instruction instruction on meditation really it's anything that is teaching kindness anything that's teaching compassion anything that's helping us become a more altruistic person a more selfless person and so that kind of opens the doors up quite a lot because then when somebody cuts you off in traffic and then gives you the bird like that we have the option to get pissed off about that and be like that guy's an a-hole screw him or we have the option to think that person is obviously in suffering they wouldn't act that way if they were happy they must be having a rough day or a rough life and then use that opportunity to engender a sense of compassion and forgiveness and that softens our heart that makes us a warmer nicer person that makes my day easier after this this annoying thing happened that could make my day worse instead I say ah, I'm gonna put this on a positive track I'm gonna use this as an opportunity to open my heart and to and to wish kindness upon somebody who clearly needs it and so in that moment we have the option whether or not to take refuge in the Dharma you see what I mean and then the third of the three jewels is uh, the Sangha and the Sangha means community or family and so uh, in its most basic sense the Sangha is this group of people here that we have the opportunity and the interest to come to uh, an event like this where we're spending some time thinking about the Dharma and imagining uh, a better world maybe like an infinitely better world where everybody is happy and everybody has all of their needs met and everybody is compassionate and loving towards one another and we're and you know by turning our minds towards that stuff we are generating the momentum the karma to see more and more of that in our world and the sangha is, is the 
the, the shelter of the Sangha, the protection of the Sangha makes that possible because we are not alone in this stuff, you know? Like, we're, what, 10 or 12 people in Chico who are not, like, watching Netflix or at the bar or something like that right now that we decided to do something else with our minds, do something else with our time. And so that's a really special thing. And the, the kind of evolution of that is that the, the Buddhas, the Buddha, the Buddhas, that, that evolutionarily, cosmically evolutionary perfected beings who have left the breadcrumbs behind in the form of Dharma are coaxing us along by showing up as our Sangha members. So that's what going for a refuge really means. And so this poem here with the Tibetan and the nice translation, I go for refuge to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, etc. Um, normally we would like clasp our hands and sing it in this kind of droning, droning chanty sounding way. But I think it's more helpful to just kind of like rehash what it means and like how is it practical in my life. And then the next part of, uh, of going for refuge is also setting our motivation. This is the Bodhisattva vow, Bodhisattva wish, which is the topic of tonight's class. And the, the Bodhisattva motivation, the, which is called Bodhicitta, is like compassion on steroids. It's like, I'm doing this because it helps others. I'm doing this because it's going to make the world a better place. I'm like putting the, the stake in the ground and saying, this matters. And I'm, and I'm not just doing it to like, I'm not just like groping for the eject button so I can like get out of the crashing airplane. I'm actually trying to like rescue everybody on the plane together. And they, you know, in, in List Buddhism, the Giluk school, they talk about all kinds of lower motivations like teaching Dharma for fame and fortune, which there are way better ways to get fame and fortune than teaching the Dharma. But I guess in, in ancient Tibet, it was like a legitimate career path and people would like bring you sacks of gold as offerings and stuff like that. And so apparently there were people who actually did go into the Buddhist industry in order to gain fame and fortune, but it's not very effective in our modern materialist culture. Um, so, so fortunately, it's pretty easy to develop a positive motivation. But the point is to remember, you know, to recall why we're doing it. Not just, not just to try to get my own self out of suffering, but really to help others too. So um, moving on to the topic of the class, this is really the, the, this whole, the, uh, the whole point in this class is, is, the, is bodhicitta, the bodhisattva wish, and how and why this is a, a source of refuge, how it can be a source of protection and shelter. So uh, on the outline, it, uh, the beginning is the definition of bodhicitta. And the long definition is this two paragraphs in the, um, in the reading. It's the third and fourth paragraph in the reading. Um, it's all like technical Buddhisty jargon, so just like, you know, save it for later. I'm not going to read it out loud. I'm just going to get to the short definition. Um, um, bodhicitta, 
Um, Bodhi means enlightenment. Uh, uh, Bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word, just so we're all on the same page. It's the ancient language of India. Um, most of the, many, not all, but many of the Buddhist texts were written in Sanskrit. They were translated into Tibetan and then uh, t- translated, imported into Tibetan. And then when the Mughal hordes around the turn of the previous millennium invaded India and destroyed all of the monastic universities and burned down the libraries, many of the original Sanskrit texts were lost. But they were so carefully translated into Tibetan that they were preserved due to Tibet's geographic isolation for the next thousand years until the Chinese invaded Tibet in the 50s. And then Tibetan Buddhism exploded onto the world scene over the last 50 years. So. We're looking at these things because they're written in these ancient languages, Tibetan and Sanskrit. Um, uh, so Bodhi, the Sanskrit term um, means like a lamp that dispels darkness. So the word enlightenment is actually a, quite a good translation for, for Bodhi. Um, and then Chitta means mind. So it means a mind, Bodhicitta means a mind that is holding the intention to become fully enlightened. The technical Buddhist definition is the wish to become enlightened for the sake of all beings, all sentient beings, all, set, all suffering beings, all beings that are still uh, trapped in the process of misunderstanding their world, which is the source of all of our pain and suffering. And so the, the wish is not just, so the wish is not just like, a, that would be nice if all beings were free from suffering and all beings had happiness, although that's a nice place to start. That's the place where we need to start when we're just getting our foot in the door and trying to be an altruistic person maybe for the first time in our life. Having discovered that being selfish doesn't really make me happy. Um, but it's really more like an obsessive driving motivation that seasons everything else in your life. It becomes, it becomes your primary way of looking at the world. And then from that mode, everything that you do becomes uh, an act that generates positive karma, positive forward momentum, momentum in your cosmic evolution because Everything that we do from getting dressed in the morning to having a meal is suffused with this idea like I got to get this done so that I can get enlightened as quickly as possible so that I can accelerate my cosmic evolution and become a being that's actually able to really help beings, which right now I'm kind of in a so-so state. I can only do so much to really have an impact on the world, but Buddhas are beings that have a tremendous ability to have an impact on the world. So. Uh, a being who has bodhicitta is called a bodhisattva. If you've ever, this is a word you've maybe heard. Uh, it's very common in Buddhist philosophy. Bodhisattvas are beings who have, they've, they've gotten on the track where they are full steam ahead, uh, focused on their evolutionary, their cosmic evolutionary trajectory. So we talk about the five stages of karmic evolution, of cosmic evolution, through the lens of the bodhisattva. Here, uh, this is section two on the handout. 
bodhicitta and the five paths of a bodhisattva, these are the five yogic paths, accumulation, preparation, seeing, habituation, no more learning. So the path of accumulation is when we are just kind of like, we're like the train that's doing the I think I can thing. I'm chugging up the hill and I'm, I, I, I have through logic and reason have developed an intelligent faith in the principles of, of karma and emptiness, which uh, karma means causality, but it means not just causality, it means that um, my intention and my worldview has an impact on the world that I perceive, the world that I experience. Emptiness is a, a technical, these are all these technical jargony Buddhisty things, um, emptiness means that the, the qualities that we see in people, objects, phenomena are not inherent in the people, objects, phenomena, but they are qualities of perception. That we are never really interacting with reality. We're, we're continually interacting with our perceptual overlays of reality. And then we get them confused all the time, which is why we think that the guy who cut me off is an asshole, because I'm mistaking my, as opposed to seeing them as a suffering being who needs help, which is what a bodhisattva would see. And a, a Buddha would see a being who has the potential for ultimate perfection, inherent in the core of their being, like that's who they really are, from a Buddha's point of view. From a bodhisattva's point of view, it's like suffering being who I need to help, which means I gotta get enlightened so that I can help them. But because we're, in the, because we're in the habit of mistaking our perceptions for reality, we think that the a-hole is, in, in, is out there and he's like, I was just like minding my own business and then he like crashed into my life. But really it's a, it's a, it's a perceptual overlay is the only thing I'm ever really interacting with. So we work on that idea in meditation until we get a real sense of how if I can change me, then I can get rid of jerks in the world. And in fact, the only way to get rid of irritating people in the world is to change me. I have to change my habits of perception in order to get rid of obnoxious people. <clears throat> the, the only way, there, there are no irritating people, there are only irritated people. And so we work with that idea until we are, this is the path of accumulation. We're developing what's called renunciation in, in more Buddhist-y lingo-y jargon. And renunciation sounds really horrible, like you have to give up all the good stuff. But it's not actually what it means. You don't have to give up the good stuff with renunciation. You give up recreating the causes for your own suffering. You give up on the idea that taking care of me at the expense of other people, stepping on other people on the ladder to the top is how I'm gonna get happy. You give up on that idea and recognize that my happiness is dependent upon the happiness of other people. And so I have to take care of them. So we're developing this idea of renunciation, um, which is really 
developing intense compassion for my own suffering and how I'm stuck in my suffering because of my habits of perception. And then once we get a really good strong sense of that, once we get what's called a realization, which is where like it shifts your mode of thinking permanently. And like we're, in, we're like playing with the idea, we're working with it, we're meditating on it, we're contemplating it, we study it in these kinds of classes and, and on our own by reading and listening to podcasts of great Buddhist teachers of which there's so many. I mean, I should mention here that this is not, none of this is really exclusive to Buddhism. All of the world religions teach the same stuff. I'm just teaching this, I'm teaching this approach. We're in a Buddhist center. I've spent 10 years or whatever studying this stuff. So I'm presenting it from the Gelugpa Orthodox uh, curriculum. But um, these concepts are, are universal to world religions. You know, the golden rule, treat others as you would have them treat you and do not treat others as you would not have them treat you is like karma in a nutshell, but that's from the Christian Bible. You know, that's something Jesus said. And so it's exactly, it's exactly the same material. So just to be clear, you can, be, you can have a foot in a lot of these different worlds at the same time, and it's totally possible to be a Christian and a Buddhist at the same time without like major worldview conflict. Um, that's just one of those kind of disclaimers <laughs> that uh, this isn't about like adopting a religious worldview. It's about developing a systematic approach to becoming a happy person. So we have this realization where like, I just get this deep felt sense of how I'm screwing up my world by being self-obsessed. And that's called renunciation. And then we switch from the path of accumulation to the path of preparation. And that's when I turn that compassion that I developed for myself, like, wow, I'm screwed unless I totally change my approach to life. And then I turn my, that view outwards and say, oh, and everybody else is in this situation too. Like they are also in, they're also in constant suffering or just discontent, you know? Suffering is like so heavy handed. It's like when you're injured or something, they call that the suffering of suffering or like you're like sick and you like feel terrible and you can't function. They call that suffering of suffering. But then there's all pervasive suffering which is like, if you check in with yourself, there's always something wrong. There's always like, I'm a little discomfort, I'm a little too full, I'm a little too hungry, I'm a little thirsty, I have to pee, whatever, you know? It's always, it's always something. And so suffering is just like, that there's always like, there's always something that's not right. And so then we realize, so first we realize that that's the condition I'm in and develop a sense of faith that, it, that that's changeable, that there's an alternative and a path to that alternative, that, and that if I change my approach to life, I can end suffering. And then we turn that on to other people. And this is the switch from renunciation to bodhicitta. Um, bodhicitta is realizing like, oh my gosh, there's billions and billions and billions of people. I mean. In Buddhism, we say all beings are essentially the same, from ants to humans to whales are all basically trying to avoid pain and seek happiness and comfort. And we realize that there's basically uncountable numbers of beings who are in this situation. And because of what I mentioned, 
that it's not a quality inherent in the object, but it's a quality of my perception. If I can shift the way that my perception works, I can actually can alleviate suffering in other beings. And that's when we get on the path of preparation. So um, there are uh, like codes of conduct for each of these stages. And so the, uh, at the path of accumulation, we practice what in Buddhism they call the pratimoksha vows or the individual liberation vows. And the, these are, in a nutshell, stop harming others. Don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. Don't use your sexuality to harm people. Don't use divisive speech. Uh, don't um, be upset when something good happens to somebody else. You know, like somebody else gets a raise and you're like, oh, I should have got the raise, it wasn't me. Or, when, or um, being happy when something bad happens to somebody you, you don't like. Like these are all these like basic things that we're just sort of like constantly putting me first. And then once we switch to the path of preparation, the next level of conduct is the bodhisattva vows, which is doing our best to help other people, um, to try to alleviate their suffering. Now there's not a whole lot that we can do to alleviate other people's suffering. We can do what we can for the people in our world. But I mean, if you take stock of where you're at, there's like not there's not something I personally can do to end world hunger or to like cause you know global disarmament or something like that. But by acting to the best of my ability, I am changing the way that my mind works. And by changing the way that my mind works, I'm cultivating this upward spiral of cosmic evolution. So we plug away at that, and that, that comes to the path of seeing. And the path of seeing is like the real game changer. The path of seeing is um, traditionally described as uh, a shift in the way that your consciousness works that generally happens while you're in a state of deep meditation. So this is one of the reasons to meditate, because we have to develop this extraordinary stillness, this extraordinary concentration, this ability to sit with my own feelings for long periods of time, the ability to manage my traumas without being you know, grabbed by the collar and shook, shook around by my, my thoughts and feelings, which are not apparently under my control all the time. So we developed this quality of stillness We've been practicing not harming others. We've been practicing helping others. And one day, in a state of deep relaxation, our persistent self-identification habit will loosen up. And because consciousness is an intrinsic aspect of reality, when I stop obsessively thinking that I am limited to this body and this mind, I slip into a state of non-dual awareness. Um, this is called all kinds of things. In, in My teachers call it the direct perception of emptiness, the direct perception of ultimate reality, cosmic consciousness, non-dual awareness. And what that means is that the subject-object relationship ceases to exist, and the sense of, the sense of I 
shifts from being me to being all time, all beings, all phenomena. Um, one of my teachers says that you see the face, you simultaneously see the face of every being that exists. And you, and you have the sense that they're all like my baby and they need me. So this is, this sounds pretty cool. Um, and what happens at that point is like the, so you come down from that and you return to your own body and your mind because you're in this karmic momentum. Karma is forcing upon you the, the sense that I'm me and I'm not, you know, that I, there, there's me and then there's not me and that they're different things. And so we still have that appearance, but we know this, is, this being is called an Arya. An Arya knows that they're being deceived by appearances. So one thing that happens at this point is that the Arya loses all doubt. This is like, this would be like a pretty good motivation to like get to the path of seeing is like at the path of seeing, you lose doubt forever. You're totally confident that the actions that you're doing matter. You're totally clear on what matters and what doesn't matter. And, uh, and this is the point where one really becomes a bodhisattva. And we switch from kind of like wanting to be a bodhisattva and saying, boy, I'm gonna be a bodhisattva someday to actually like understanding what it means to be a bodhisattva. And that's the path of habituation. In, uh, in Buddhism, they talk about the, the, le the, the levels of being a bodhisattva, which is like you're, you're gradually ratcheting up that massive ultra-compassion that sees all beings as my responsibility. And it's just a process of, it's just a process of getting that momentum up that will eventually lead to the shift over to full Buddhahood. And that's the path of no more learning. The path of no more learning is not really a path at all. It's actually the, um, it's the finished state. So that's nice that there are five paths, but actually there are only four paths because the fifth one is you're, you're done already. And, uh, and it's pretty clear in the name. No more learning. There's nothing else, there's nothing else to do. It's spontaneous, like the right action, right motivation is just an inherent quality of the way that your mind is working at that point. So to put this another way, the four types of bodhicitta, according to the level of one's spiritual understanding, um, this is the, uh, the three principal paths, which was the, um, the previous course that we did. So those podcasts are available if you want to listen to those. Um, and the three principal paths are renunciation, bodhicitta, and wisdom. Um, wisdom is, is understanding how reality is working. I've mentioned it several times, but the catchphrase is wisdom. Um, so the belief wish is, um, is based on that intelligent faith. It's the belief wish is like, I think I can. Like this seems possible and I'm gonna try. And that's, you know, that's when we're still developing renunciation, when we're still trying to like figure out, 
we're still trying to, I mean, let's be frank, we're still trying to figure out if a spiritual path is worthwhile. We're still trying to figure out if, 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 uh, if any of this even makes sense. You know, we don't have any, necessarily any realizations of it. We're trying to like, we're, you know, we're testing the ideas. We're working with it intellectually, we're working with it rationally. So that's that in de developing that faith. And you know, in the West we always put blind in front of the word faith, but in Buddhist philosophy we put the word intelligent in front of the word faith, which is um, we've worked on it intellectually and and said, I think this could work, and I'm going to try it, you know? Um, but you know, you've got to go from being a dabbler to having a consistent meditation practice to, you know, start thinking about it every day, start trying to restructure the way that you're interacting with the world, you know? Buddhism is not, in my opinion, there are differences of opinion on this, and in my opinion, Buddhism is not something that you believe in you know it's not a religion in the sense that we have this like magical creature and if we like worship the creature enough that they'll like come down from heaven and like bonk us on the head and then all our problems will go away and then we can become a buddha if we just like pray hard enough it's a it's a methodology it's a scientific methodology in which we're systematically changing the way that i understand the world based on the assertion the um you know, the, the, the hypothesis is that consciousness is an, intrinsic part of, is an intrinsic aspect of reality, and therefore, to change one's perception, consciousness is an, in is an inherent quality of reality. Therefore, what I'm perceiving, is, reality is the way it is because of the way that I perceive it. Therefore, if I can change my perception, I will change reality itself. That's our hypothesis that we're here to test. And the only laboratory that you can test these ideas is your own mind, your own consciousness. Somebody, you know, like the Buddha and the Dharma it, that we take refuge in the beginning of the class is like the idea that somebody tested it out, produced the ultimate results, gave us a manual, and, um, and then we've got the manual. But just reading the manual doesn't do anything. Just believing that somebody got enlightened once upon a time doesn't do anything. We have to put the methodology into practice in our own life, in the scientific laboratory of our own mind and our own consciousness. So that's intelligent faith, you know? That there's really no way of knowing if this works or not unless you do it yourself. You're just taking it on, you know, you're just taking it on somebody's word. So don't take it on my word. Don't take it on Buddha's word. Don't take it on any guru's word. Test it. You know, it's a system. It's, a, it's a pro an approach. So that's what gets us into the personal, personal responsibility wish, which is realizing that realizing that we have to develop bodhicitta in order to become enlightened. And like full enlightenment, full Buddhahood is not possible without bodhicitta. There are some, allegedly some spiritual states that you can achieve without bodhicitta, but they won't last, they won't last. They're like all phenomena where you can kind of like get, every, get the pieces in the right place and go to like a, a paradise or some kind of like neutral zone, like, what do they call it? 
uh, purgatory or something like that, where things are like, you're just sort of like floating in a sea of amniotic fluid and nothing bothers you. But those kinds of states won't last because they're created by karmic momentum. You can kind of like aim your rocket ship and launch yourself into one of these kinds of, you know, spiritual realms. And then you'll hang out there for a while, but eventually the karma that got you there is going to wear out and you're going to get chunked back into one of the realms of suffering of which there are many that are way worse than being a human. So full Buddhahood requires bodhicitta because this is what the, one of the laws of karma, one of the laws of how causality is functioning. In order to get something for ourselves, we have to want it for others more. We have to want others' happiness more than we want our own happiness in order to generate the momentum for the happiness to arise in us naturally in an uncontrived way. So therefore, to, to access Buddhahood, they often use the word attain, but it's not really an attainment. It's more of like a letting go. It's not like you can't get Buddhahood. It's more like you let go of all the bullshit that's not Buddhahood, and Buddhahood is the only thing that's left. But the only way to get that to rise up spontaneously is to dedicate our efforts to getting that for others. So this is the personal responsibility wish. The practice is to say, it's my job because reality is a product of my perception. Suffering beings are a product of my perception. Therefore, it's my responsibility to change my perception in order to alleviate the suffering of other beings. And then you get that to a large enough degree, to a big enough scope, a cosmic scope where you can expand your mind to imagine billions of galaxies with billions of inhabited worlds in each galaxy and billions of beings on each of those inhabited worlds and say they are all my responsibility. It's, and whether or not that's like literally true is kind of beside the point. The point is that we have to like get our mind into that kind of scope so that we can slip out of the persistent self-identification habit and into the cosmic consciousness which identifies all beings and all phenomena as as part of my own body and world in which case I'm not going to be there you know by the way um, Chogyang Trungpa who's one of the great 20th century Buddhist masters uh, said that Buddhahood is going to be the ultimate insult to your ego because you're not going to be there right you have to get rid of your own self in order to I'm not going to get enlightened you know what I mean this this mind stream that's on this cosmic evolutionary path is going to slip into the state of Buddhahood, but Mojo's not going to be there anymore. So, brace yourself for that, you know. Um, so this is like why we have to want it more for others. That's the personal responsibility wish. And then the, the ripened wish is what leads you into the path of seeing. That's where you've been stretching your mind, you've been working with meditation, and you actually finally get that, the like membrane of me dissolves, and we have at least a moment of a sensation of we're, we're all in it together. Like, this is when they talk about like it's all one. And that's, um, 
that's what we want to go for, but we can't, it's, it's, it can't be contrived, you see? It's a letting go, not an acquisition. And then uh, the wish where all obstacles are eliminated, that's again the state of Buddhahood. Um, now this is kind of a trick question. Do Buddhas have bodhicitta? If they're already enlightened, do they still need bodhicitta? And the answer is yes. Buddhas actually are the ultimate state of bodhicitta because the only way that they can perpetuate their state of Buddhahood is by having massive bodhicitta for all of the, for all of the, the suffering sentient beings. Buddhas have this, you know, we can't really wrap our minds around what, it, what Buddhahood really means, but we, there are like lots of ways to look at it and lots of ways to think about it. Buddhas exist outside of time. Time is a, our perception of time is a linear thing, is a quality of our perception. That's not how reality is really working. Um, so Buddhas exist outside of time. And so they see each being as every state that they go through throughout their entire cosmic evolution, which is countless lifetimes. We're talking about eons and eons of rebirth. So um, Buddhas can see the suffering being that you are now and that you've been through each of your you know, incarnations, assuming that you are a suffering being, which is not a safe assumption. You never know what's going on in another being's mind. So. You just don't know who you're, in, you never know who you're dealing with. Maybe they're already a Buddha emanating as a teacher for you to like push the right button at the right time, you know? Like the guy giving you the finger, cutting you off in traffic. It's safe to assume that that's a Bodhisattva, Buddha Bodhisattva who came into my life for the purpose of helping me develop compassion. But that's, again, a quality of my perception, right? So it's kind of a little bit of a cat chasing its tail. So Buddhas are continually recreating the causes for their enlightenment by constantly emanating countless forms to help countless beings in this kind of like holographic nexus or something like that. Anyway, um, three types of bodhicitta according to how one thinks. Um, these are again just metaphors on, on different ways to think about bodhicitta. Um, King-like, shepherd-like, and fairyman-like. Um, King-like bodhicitta is the motivation of like, I've got to get there so that I can lead everybody else to bodhicitta. And so we have to have this motivation because we have to be gung-ho on our intention to, to become enlightened, on our intention to develop true bodhicitta and to get our cosmic evolution going with enough momentum that I'm eventually going to, I'm going to be the next messiah, right? Like I'm the next Jesus and I'm going to take on the suffering of all beings so that they can be free. Um, Shepherd-like bodhicitta is the idea that I'm herding the beings along and, um, and they have to get there. I have to make sure that they get there. And so we have to have this motivation in the sense that we have to want it more for others than we do for ourselves. We have to have the willingness, it doesn't work this way, but we have to have the willingness to say, I'm gonna be last. You know, there's a, a Buddhist poem that says something like, and I shall remain until the dregs of the well of suffering have been emptied of every last being. And so we have to have that motivation as well. And then the third is the ferryman-like, 
bodhicitta, which is like we're all getting on the boat and we're all going to cross the river together. And that's really the one that's closest to how it actually functions because I have to want enlightenment more for others than for myself. So I have to see others as being already enlightened and emanating as Buddhas. These are, these are different tactics and approaches. The great, and this is like what guru yoga, if you've ever heard of guru yoga, this is like the idea of guru yoga is that you are choosing to impose qualities of enlightened being on somebody else. And so they're not necessarily, they're not a Buddha, they're not not a Buddha, they're neither. They're, they're empty of inherent characteristics independent of what I'm overlaying due to my perception. But if I can like hijack my perception to see those, see every behavior that a specific individual does, we start with one person because it's hard enough with one person. If we can see those qualities in one person, we can practice seeing those qualities in one person. Then eventually we it starts to pop in other parts of our life and the guy cuts us off and, and then where it used to be like that jerk like it starts to be the point where spontaneously you're like oh remember to have compassion for others oh remember to to practice patience instead of practicing anger in this instance and then for that moment that person can be the guru and so then we want to like stretch that out to everybody everybody Here's one of the, here's a practice for guru yoga, is assuming that I'm the only one left. Everybody else is already enlightened. I can't tell because my perceptual overlay forces me to see them as ordinary people, but that's just a quality of my perception. I can rationalize that how I'm wrong in that. And then by seeing them all as Buddhas, just see every single being and every single phenomena as existing for the sole purpose of pushing me along my spiritual trajectory and then if I can do that skillfully enough that's how I generate the karma to see my to see my own self as having the characteristics and qualities of an enlightened being and that's the shepherd that's the fairy type bodhicitta so there are these three different attitudes towards cultivating bodhicitta but really we use all three depending on how we're feeling in the moment Two types of bodhicitta according to its basic nature. That's all jargony. Um, the wish in the form of a prayer and the wish in the form of action. The wish in the form of a prayer is when is pretty much any kind of meditational or practice practice thing where I'm trying to cultivate the attitude, where I'm trying to cultivate the right uh, state of mind. And um, they call it a prayer because it's like, I wish I could be a bodhisattva. I wish I had the capacity to have compassion for every single being. I wish I had a soft, warm, loving, open heart that treated every being as a, a child. And when they do something stupid or hurtful, just to be like, oh, they're there, you know. That's, that's not the right way to do things, but not instead of be like, get angry at them or whatever, you know. And say, I wish I could be like that. Um, I'm going to try to be like that. The wish in the form of action is acti activism, basically. It's taking the, the, uh, taking the, the philosophy of, of bodhicitta and thinking about why it matters, which is the wish in the form of prayer, and then putting it into action in our daily life as much as we possibly can. Helping people wherever possible. And... Uh, 
And I think this does mean activism in the sense of social justice and ecological justice and economic justice. Like working, I mean, what, what is social justice other than to say, I, I see that these other beings are suffering and I need to do something about it. It's my responsibility to do something about it. And, you know, ecological justice and economic justice where it's like, I'm going to not buy products that are the result of exploitation. I'm going to avoid, um, you know, supporting food that comes from deforestation and stuff like that. And so we've, we have to put these things into action. Like bodhicitta without, uh, bodhicitta in the form of a prayer is very important to develop our motivation. But if we're not applying it in our daily lives to the be beings that are in our immediate vicinity, then it's emasculated, for lack of a better word. It's impotent, you know? It's, uh, it's just, it's, uh, it's happy thoughts without the incentive without the drive to do something about it. And now we can't necessarily solve the world's problems with our actions. So it's important to not like, you know, go into the self-flagellation mode of like, I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. I need to, I need to, I'm, I need to do more to help people than I am capable of. It's about recognizing what our capacities are and then doing our absolute best within those capacities because we're trying to develop the momentum. And then as we develop increasing amounts of bodhicitta and spiritual capability, spiritual capacity, our cosmic evolution is gaining in its momentum, we'll, our capacity will naturally increase. And then we can do more. And then we can develop more and better, we can develop more better bodhicitta and then we can, and then we have increased capacity even further. And then last thing here is apparent versus ultimate bodhicitta. Apparent is pretty much everything that I've described thus far. Um, apparent is the techniques, the philosophical approaches, the meditation exercises, the activism, all of the things that we can do with the capacity that we have now. Ultimate bodhicitta is when our mind flips over, we have the direct experience of all beings being an aspect of me, air quotes, me, because it's not me, this body and mind, but the sense, the sense of me shifts to be ultimately all-inclusive. And then that's, that's, when the bodhi, that's when you have real bodhicitta, because then there's no doubt in your mind, the path of seeing, there's no doubt in your mind that this is true and this makes sense. And that's the ultimate bodhicitta. But don't take my word for it. I'm just explaining the methodology here. I'm just explaining the scientific method as it's been explained to me and to the best of my understanding. And then what matters is that you use the laboratory that you have for a limited time only, by the way. This, you, this body and mind isn't going to last. If you haven't noticed, it's deteriorating. And at some point, it, you're, it's going to go away. I'm talking about death is inevitable. Uh, and so that's a little extra. There's a little extra incentive to like put this into practice because you only have it for a limited time. You know, We've got a pretty good deal. Like Here we are in a climate-controlled building where we've got the free time to like hang around and geek out on 
esoteric philosophy. Like we're not in a war zone. We're not like on the brink of true starvation. We have clean water that just like magically comes out of the tap. Like even, you know, if you take a comparison of all the beings on the planet, even if you take comparison shopping of the human beings, you know, there are billions of people on the planet who don't know how to read, who can't read, who don't have clean water, who don't have sufficient access to food. They don't have time to spend a Thursday evening in a, at a meditation class, you know? And my point in saying that is because when this opportunity runs out, this opportunity could run out at any time, and there's no guarantee that we'll get, that we'll get another chance that's as good as this one. You know, karma, karma and emptiness, evolution, rebirth, is not necessarily a, an upward cycle. You know, we, based on the way that we act and think and speak, we decide if we're going to increase our cosmic evolution on the upward trajectory or if we're going to put our cosmic evolution on the downward trajectory. It's totally possible, according to Buddhist metaphysics, to be reborn as an animal or an insect or much worse things that we can only imagine um, that are buddhist hell realms and stuff like that. That's a class for another time, but um, we're not going to go into it too much right now. So my encouragement to you is to think about these things on your own. Um, I've provided um, a little handout with some reading, so you have like a little souvenir that you can take home and refer to later. Um, I encourage you to meditate every day, even if it's just a few minutes. If even a few, a few minutes is great if you can do it every day. Meditation is the kind of thing that a few minutes every day is way better than an hour once a week. Uh, just setting the intention to, to meditate for a few minutes a day is, is a big deal. Okay. <laughs>